Alexander Bard is really like a Swedish Renaissance man. He's got a little taste in many different aspects of culture, from music to philosophy to spirituality. And really, as you'll notice, he's kind of a wild man. He comes across a lot like Wim Hof reminds me of, someone who's living fully in the radical experience of his humanhood and of his manhood. And while some of his ideas just come out wild and they may shock you as he says them, I can tell that his heart is coming from a right place and that his mind is actually thinking about things in a very interesting way. So this was a wild conversation that I enjoyed immensely. And I hope you guys enjoy it and take it all with a smile. And when he gets into his wild man, just to appreciate this unique, unique individual named Alexander Bard. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Ketone IQ. Now, I have to admit, I just saw that I was doing a read for Ketone IQ, and I went to the fridge and I grabbed some Ketone IQ, and I took a big serving. Why did I do that? Because ketones are one of the energy sources that the body can utilize, and obviously we know about this from the ketogenic diet, but you can also take what's called exogenous ketones, which are ketones which are not produced in the body but are taken like a supplement and will give you some of the same benefit, allow you to be a dual energy machine, much like Mark Sisson talked about on our previous podcast about being a dual energy utilizer. It's like having two fuel sources for your engine. And that's not only physical energy, but also mental acuity as well. And that's what I notice when I take Ketone IQ. It's the best exogenous ketone product that I have ever encountered. So of course, HVMN is really focused on helping you become the best version of yourself. And some of that starts with really good metabolic health. And of course, ketones are very important for metabolic health. And HVMN really has unlocked these benefits of drinkable ketones. There's a lot of ketones out there, but they've really taken it to the next level and allows you to access what really was ultimately like an ancient source of energy for times where all you were able to access was the fats and a little bit of the protein from the animals and produce ketones on your own. Or from a fasted period, actually, you start producing ketones even faster. So this is just an incredible product. It's something that I have in my quiver. Obviously, I have a ton of Onnit products that go everywhere that I go. And Ketone IQ is another one of those products that goes absolutely everywhere that I go. And that's just the truth. So go to Ketone IQ, that's K-E-T-O-N-E, dash iq.com and use the promo code amp to check out and save 10 percent. once again ketoneiq.com and use the promo code amp for 10 percent off next up we have apollo neuro now apollo is a stress relief wearable that is designed to help you become a calmer more mindful version of yourself through touch therapy and it does this by providing these warm pulsing sensations that actually go through the device and it's really interesting to feel the effects that this has on your nervous system it's something that vilana and i will use both when we're in a medicine journey or a meditation or sometimes a breath work experience but honestly it doesn't have to be during any of those experiences the effects of the apollo wearable will be noticeable whether you're actually paying attention to it or not, or whether you're in one of those transformational or transcendental states or not. 
Some of the results of the clinical trials that they've done on Apollo Neuro have shown that users experience 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety, 19% more time in deep sleep, up to 25% increases in focus and concentration. And all of these different effects are based on different programs and different pulses that the Apollo Neuro actually pushes through in the vibrational mechanism of the device itself. Just like our brain waves pulse at different frequencies that allows us to actually access different states of consciousness, this is working in not exactly the same way, but it's working in a similar way, pushing out different frequencies of pulses that are sensed by the skin and received by the nervous system. It's a really cool device developed by neuroscientists and doctors. You may have heard Dr. Dave Rabin talk about it on my podcast already. So if you're interested, go to apolloneuro.com slash Aubrey. That's Apollo, N-E-U-R-O.com slash Aubrey, and you will get $40 off of the wearable. Lastly, we have on it. So you are all probably aware of the potency of the new wave of exotic functional nutritional mushrooms that are out there. We've been talking about it at Onnit for over a decade now. I mean, one of our first formulas that really hit the scene besides Alpha Brain was Shroom Tech Sport. And we identified that Cordyceps sinensis could support anybody when they're actually going in high intensity training or altitude training or a variety of different purposes that could help you with oxygen utilization and just help your body function at an optimal level from just a cellular energy perspective. Now, not only can these functional mushrooms provide energy during exercise, they're also extremely supportive for the immune system. That's when we came out with Shroom Tech Immune, a different formula with different strains of mushrooms, and also cognitive functions. I mean, there's nutritional mushrooms in our Alpha Brain Black Label, for instance, Lion's Mane. So the Shroom Tech collection brings together all of our mushroom-containing supplements all together in one place. The new Shroom Tech collection brings together a lot of our most popular mushroom containing supplements all together in one space. So for one week only, you can get 20% off Shroom Tech Sport, 20% off Shroom Tech Immune, or Shroom Tech Greens, our newest product, which combines all of the best in green foods with these nutritional mushrooms by using the coupon code SHROOM20. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and then put in the code SHROOM20 and get yourself on the train of some really potent nutritional mushrooms. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey, code SHROOM20. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Alexander Bard. Alexander, my brother, here we are. Happy to be Thank having this so conversation. Having of yeah, course. It's great. Of it's course. great to be here. It's great to be yeah, here. indeed. So I want to jump in because before I went to Burning Man, we had our initial conversation, and you seem to know quite a bit not only about the Burning Man initiatory ritual, celebratory ritual, but how actually there's many different burns around the whole world, and they're all serving a similar but different purpose, and uh, and just painted a landscape for me that was far beyond this one festival doing this one thing, but it was actually a phenomenon. That was that was yes. kind of so. Universal. So the thing is that um, I was looking for a cultural expression of the digital age that you could start with, and obviously the digital age started in California. California is like the Mesopotamia or the Germany this time around. So the I would say I think John Sedeckis and I dated it to 1982 in the opening of Godfrey shows 
kind of Scotsy movie because kind of Scotsy pretty much summarizes history from the perspective of digital age. So say, say California is the starting point for all of this. And, um, I was looking for like a first cultural expression. Burning Man is just perfect. It's, it's right between Las Vegas and Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. It is, if you see it from, if you take a satellite image, it looks exactly like what the internet would look like. You know, the structure of it. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just like it's auto-created itself to look like the internet or the other way around. It also right. starts in the 1980s when we start to grasp the fact that the internet's going to change the world forever, which is something entirely new. And that California is obviously the place where the cradle for the civilization. And, um, and then I went to Burning Man with friends. They were tech guys from San Francisco, had a hilarious time, went back another year with the Stanford physicist, the pump full of drugs for like eight days. I was basically a drug <laughs> rabbit, you know. But I had a really spicy, hot woman walking around naked, taking cocaine all the time to protect me. So I was perfectly happy to. I've Listen, when it, diff- when it comes every to Burning body- Man, it's a different experience. Every when it comes to bodyguards, experience. when it comes to bodyguards, that's what you're really looking for. So That's the ultimate bodyguard. <laughs> She doesn't even care yeah. about you. She's just ultimate bodyguard, right? <laughs> Especially at Burning Man. But, but obviously, uh, the freedom of it, it's like, it's also because we tend to think outside of America, of America being cynically capitalist, commercialized, and all that. And you come to Burning Man, and there are 80,000 people that are there because they love it. They participate in it. And everything they do, nobody makes a profit. It, it is American communism. That's what it is, right? So... There's something really beautiful in American culture that's being exposed, of course, in Burner culture. What then happened was, of course, the Burner culture started taking off around the world. And when I got to know Larry Harvey and eventually Marion Goodell and all these guys at Burning Man headquarters in San Francisco, simply because I was on the board of a festival called The Borderland, which started uh-huh. in Scandinavia. And it's now one of the best burners in the world. It also owns its own permanent property. Uh, people are moving to this area of Scandinavia. And, you know, it's all taking off like a 24-hour, 365-day week subculture. And I, I predicted that the Burning Man would be something you would do 11 months a year online. And then you would go to the festival as a peak experience. Uh-huh. of the whole thing. And then you would obviously have intentions for six months and you would integrate for six months afterwards if you didn't start to go to all the burns around the world like some burners do. And right. um, then I, I wanted to write a book about it. I'm a philosopher. And um, Jean Sedeckvist and I had already done a trilogy called the Futurica Trilogy. We were, we're thinking, where are we going next? And uh, I realized that participatory culture really is the religion of the 21st century. Religion starts with the practice, right? Mm. It has everything else involved. It, thankfully, it's not very Christian, meaning it has free sex and psychedelics and all kinds of great shit in yeah. it. Um, so, but it's not paganism either. It's clearly something entirely new. We've never been able to do participatory culture because we haven't been able to be tribal on the kind of scale we are. We go tribal online. Mm. And um, I, I interviewed Larry Harvey for the book. And eventually we took the interview out of the book. Because by the time we developed the ideas, Larry just said, well, I always believed in participatory culture and you get the idea. Burning Man might fall. Burning Man might suddenly have Leonardo DiCaprio front line with Coca-Cola signs everywhere. That's exactly yeah. how he expressed it. You know, I, I cannot protect it forever or the people around me cannot protect it forever from the enormous pressure of commercializing the event or getting advertisers in or whatever shit you, you don't want to have there. But, you know, so he said, but what's important here is an evolutionary development. And there are now over 250 official spinoffs from Burning Man around the world. Mm. And I tell you what, you go to some of the others and they're, they're even better. They're smaller, more intimate, and more challenging and more interesting. And... Uh, um, 
of course, they all reflect the local culture where they built, but they, more than anything, they reflect the topography. Mm-hmm. If you go to desert burn, like South Africa or Israel, they're identical to Burning Man because desert is how you do desert burn. But if you mm-hmm. go, for example, to the borderland in Scandinavia, it's forests and lakes and, you know, beautiful, stunningly nature around, you know, that. And that reflects the burn. People are simply a lot more naked than they are burning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, one of the interesting phenomenon that I experienced from this burn is I had the most radically expansive experience of any time I've ever been to Burning Man. And it was actually, it was so much so that it was as if I'd never gone to Burning Man before. And this was my first time because I actually unlocked a different dimensional reality, the dimensional reality of childlike wonder and awe, where before I would look and be like, that's cool. But I was I would that was like subject and object were separate but actually I went on the inside of the inside of the experience of all of the art and the music and the and the community and from the inside it was a radically different experience and so it was a stunning like gorgeous life affirming experience that will ripple through my life you know, forever, actually, you know, how powerful this was. We had a playa wedding with my wife that was absolutely spur of the moment, gorgeous, like everything. It was a hundred out of a hundred. And I had that experience and I shared that experience. And most people were, wow, that sounds amazing. I'd love to go. But it was very interesting to see the blowback against it, you know, where people were just attacking it. Oh, you, you should see all the fuel that it took to make it and all of that. And it's funny to me how how much people will try to take something like this that is clearly expanding consciousness. And actually, if you look at the meta crisis of the world, it's a crisis of consciousness ultimately, although there's many problems downstream from that. But to devalue the important purpose of these kind of cultural landmarks was very interesting to see Audrey, how people didn't Audrey, get it. You look great. Your wife looks great. You're highly <laughs> successful. It's called envy. <laughs> and like if you flaunt it in public that how fantastic your life is, it, especially if it is fantastic, genuinely, mm. they will go envious against you. So being a celebrity here in Scandinavia myself, yeah, you, you get into those modes. But I think just to summarize, it sounds like you took Hegel's phenomenology of spirit and went to Burning Man and suddenly you did also Zarathustra by Nietzsche and became the childlike figure in that book. So this yeah. is deeply philosophical. All of it is deeply philosophical. The, the thing, though, is that um, what wasn't... The book I eventually wrote is called Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age. Okay? Some guys at Google thought it meant that they should create a technology that becomes God. We probably will do that anyway, but that wasn't the point with the book. The point with the book was to really look into participatory culture. And what it discovered was that philosophers never really dealt with ecstasy. Mm. Therefore, it hasn't really dealt with trauma. Mm. properly. And right now we live in a world full of tons of narcissism where the easiest way to get attention without effort is to claim you've been through a trauma. You go to Bali and every girl you meet in Bali has a trauma, but she met a guru on Sunday who fucked her and therefore she went through transformation. And then she has a trauma again the next Thursday. And then she fucks another guru, goes through transformation, and then she has trauma all over again. Right? So I'm, I'm, I'm really sick of this trauma flation because there are actually genuine traumas, including your own birth. That's why you can't remember it. Right, right. We've all gone through trauma. But the trauma flation 
has come out of narcissism. And I think it's, it, it's not a sort of post-Christian world we live right now in America and Europe. The trauma has become like, well, it, something traumatic happened to me, therefore I deserve to go to heaven and have, have, have justice. And therefore the people are more successful than me, the people who are ahead of me, I can look down on them and attack them because my trauma gives me right to do that. And that's called the woke culture. Mm-hmm. So I think the key is the traumaflation, it is as horrible as it sounds, has led to woke culture. The Jacobins mm-hmm. are back and being revengeful and hating others for being successful or whatever has suddenly become the culture norm. Move, yeah. you're, moving, you're moving kind of quick and I appreciate yeah. it because I'm following you, but just for my audience, yeah. did you say the okay. Jacobins are back? What, what was the Jacobin? Like the French Revolution. So the French Revolution were full of all these people that walked around that were pacifists and vegetarian and very shishi, and they, they were peaceful and they thought everybody was vulgar. And they came, you know, they came and started leading the French Revolution. They became the bloodthirstiest demon of them all. I mean, they killed uh-huh. everybody, including themselves eventually. This is the problem of woke culture. Woke culture will kill itself. It is, it itself. is its own enemy because it's built on resentment. It's not built on heroism. And that's mm. fundamentally what we learned from Hesse. It's happened before. But the thing here is, though, if you start looking at it from a sort of Hegelian perspective, like there's trauma everywhere, whether it ever happened or not, then probably what we still haven't dealt with is what ecstasy is. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to go into an ecstatic state? What does it mean to stay there? What does it mean to learn how to come down? What does it mean to memorize it? What does it mean to share it with people you love? And this is why I went to Peru and Mexico and Iran. You probably did the same thing because you couldn't find a single trace in Western culture of people who had actually gone into the idea of the ecstasy and really explored it and could explain. Yeah, well, how and, then, and there's uh, that's this is this is I'm fucking right with you, man, because mm-hmm. I think the suppression of the ecstatic impulse through any any of the doors through whether that's a sexual erotic door or whether it's through mystical erotic or whether it's through psychedelic erotic or however you get there you know it's all of those things either through religious puritan you know puritanism or whether it's through industrial revolution commercial puritanism one way or another it's either you're supposed to work hard just to make more money and that's how you're successful or you suffer so that you go to heaven either way it's the same fucking idea but just with a different ultimate goal attached to it and it's just completely pervasive in western culture and so the place of ecstasy in the sacred and and like reuniting ecstasy in the sacred is one of the key steps i think to the superstructure that needs to inform the infrastructure and social structure of our world Absolutely. The way you phrase that, and you probably agree with me, is that we do not have the separation of Tantra and Sutra in Western culture. And this was the greatest achievement of Eastern philosophy. Mm. Sutra is what you tell people in public so they love their kids. The truth (laughs) there isn't factual at all. The truth is that it's a story that makes people love their kids. That's essentially what Sutra is. The Tantra is the truth no matter what. Therefore, it has to be locked up. We do something now we call aditonology. I know it's a complex Greek word, but it's the proper one. It's a Greek word too. Aditon meaning the inner sanctum of the temple. Aditonology is basically how you run the inner sanctum of the table, temple. You have a container and you keep it locked up so whatever happens in there doesn't leak out into the public. And this is lost in Christianity because in Christianity, we're all supposed to be transparent about absolutely everything. We're supposed to talk directly to God, which, of course, people don't. They talk to saints or their 
forefathers or whatever, they don't talk to God. Priests talk to God. You go to the priest, the priest will talk to God on your behalf. People are perfectly biologically programmed to understand the difference, right? And Christianity right. tried to overcome that. Islam made the same mistake. The mistake is that it's a cult of transparency. And we've inherited that in our culture. Everything must be transparent. Like if anything was just out in the open, it will automatically solve itself. Reality is that if people would know what you and I do inside our auditons, the envy you've experienced this year is nothing compared to what we would receive then. <laughs> but here's it's the catch. The, here's the catch. They are so afraid of the ecstatic state that people prefer to live in the mortido, in the death drive, rather than in the libido, which is like horny, fucking, I want to live shit. So they, they de- deny the libido and go into the mortido, and therefore they envy and they hate the people who express that the libido. Mm. And this is what we need to yeah. deal with. We need to deal with the fact that ecstasy is a fact of life. And then we need to learn how to deal with it. And it's, you know, shamanic work. It's three steps. First, the int- intention. What the hell are you doing here? Or why are you going through this? Once you settle that, you know what you're going to do. Then it's a ceremony. And that's when you're high, like hell. But you also, you, you, you're not high enough until you get to a state that we call the infinite now. Mm. And the infinite now is a state that is so ecstatic that if you would have to stay, it would be horrible. But if you only stay there temporarily, it is fantastic and bliss. Sure, sure. And that's how you learn how to come down. This is the exact opposite of abuse. You learn, I must come down. I can't stay here, but I can go yeah, back the body to can't, the, the state body again. Cannot hold, the body can't hold it. When I reach those states, it's like the body can't hold it. It's like my cells... Yes are getting charged with, you know, I'm a, I'm a 110 watt light bulb and there's 110,000 watts running through my body. And it's like, this feels unbelievably ecstatic and incredible, but the, I'm ready to go down now. Thank you very much. This I can do drugs for you to- that easily. <laughs> Your wife too, whatever. <laughs> I, we're in, we're in, totally. Yeah, exactly. But here's the point. The learning lesson is that you can come down, you can control it, so your subjectivity doesn't arrive in the blissful state because you're, di- you're right. dissolved, right? What happens is you get your subjectivity back in a new form, ego transformation, you get it back in a new form. I am in control of things. I have learned how to come down. I can master the coming down process. You will never, ever abuse anything, not even French wine again in your life when you go through that. You come down, and that's when the integration starts, when you're like broken, right. you know, you're shaky, uh, your friends are like shaky, like what the fuck happened? And that's when all truth comes out and you can have yeah. it. It just comes out, right? And then you integrate that and you come back to everyday life. I always say people, if you're going to do drugs, you've got to love to get up on a Monday morning and be sober and go to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have a problem, get up Monday, stop it right away. You've gone yeah. way too far. You must step back. You must love your sobriety. You must absolutely love your sobriety. Every shame and I met love sobriety. And then you go back to that ecstatic state for either two reasons, either for healing purposes, because there mm-hmm. is trauma, but most of the time just for fucking inspiration. Just yeah, get inspired to, to, get to, to do, new, do new great things, new great doing? podcasts, yeah. new wines, everything, to create great things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, what you're talking about is, feels to me like an initiatory practice that 
in if I was architecting a, a society, a social structure like Huxley did in Island and when he created Paula, and he had an ecstatic initiatory ritual that included the difficulty of the climb to the mountain and then the moksha, the, the psychedelic medicine that was administered in the cave by the elders to bring people to that ecstatic state. And this is what every child of Pala went through as a coming of age, a real coming of age, a real initiatory experience where you transcend the self, dissolve into the unicity of the numinous and then learn how to come back into yourself but with the knowledge of the collapse of separation and then all of a sudden you are fundamentally different there's a line of demarcation from the you that was before and the you that is after and nothing will ever be the same and we don't fucking have that and that's no, a shame and when your ego is too big after that first experience because you're too excited about it then often there's an old woman in the tribe. You know, I worked in New Guinea yeah. and Brazil and these places. And there's an old woman in the tribe, the matriarch. She's like this little woman. She's like, she's really old, right? And she just walks up to that cocky guy and she smacks him in the face. Do, 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 do nothing without me. In Africa, it's called Iboga. Iboga does exactly the same thing. It of knocks course. you down to size. But by precisely being a fully grown man who, who's not submitting to the interest of the community, submitting to the tribe, finding your archetype, finding who you are in relation, you get all the meaning and the purpose you were looking for. This is the proper adult subjectivity. It, 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 comes, it comes as, and this is why this old woman, she won't do it if the drug's done it, but she will do that to make sure it happens if it has to be done. And that is what's lacking in our culture. We basically be going to ecstatic things. We don't know how to deal with them. And then we're accused of being hedonistic and we go back to them and they have no meaning to us. And right. they just look like escapism when they should be exactly the opposite of that. And another aspect of this is right now, because it's not part of our culture and it's not necessarily like a, like if you did this as they did in Pala in Huxley's novel, then you're there with all of the people of your same age, maybe not at the same time, depending on the size of society, but there's 30 people, all 30 experience the same thing. Everybody merges and feels the presence of God. They experience an apotheosis. And so when you try to come back and be all inflated, like, I just experienced God, everybody's like, yeah, me too, dummy. <laughs> you know, so then you start to get then you start to get the reality that you're not you're not you're you're unique but not special. Yeah, you're an archetype. You're fantastic. That it's precisely after these ceremonies that you find out there's the older man I should have for guidance because he's me, but older and he's my mentor. Yep. That's when you find out who compliments your parents. It's no longer about the father or the mother. It's about fathers and mothers and plurals. That's your mentor. And often they point you to him. He says that, didn't you experience like a certain personality you have? And this is where the guys fight with the archetype, the arch your own personal archetype. Here's the irony of it. You have two archetypes. The secondary one is the one where you have to make an effort that most people get lost with. The primary one is that which you do with such ease that's nothing for you, but all the other guys are dead impressed. It can be anything, Expl but that's explain the primary that, Explain archetype. that a little bit more. Are you talking about like warrior, lover, king, magician archetypes? Or, or no, what are you talking about? No, those, those are just pop books. No, the real archetypes are actually... We do it with data science. The real archetypes, there are a lot of them, but the real archetypes here are the different personalities we have and how we contribute to the tribe. And what's uh -huh. fantastic with doing this kind of work is to sit down with somebody, for example, who's an alcoholic, and then say, in our work, we don't call you an alcoholic. We call you, you're the guy with the monotony gene. 
You can handle monotony. Monotony, Gene. Now, you use monotony as an escapism to punish yourself for, for not succeeding in life. When in reality, uh-huh. if somebody had so, seen you in a tribe, they would have just taken out, right, you can do the monotony thing. What I do with these guys is that I put them, for example, fishing, you know, like fishing, like it takes hours before it actually bites. And they yep. do better than anybody else. Why? Yep. Because it's a monotony gene. And when the monotony gene goes into trauma and you fail in life, then just open in the next bottle of wine or open the next beer. It's exactly what you do because it's monotonous. Wow, this is, really, this is really, in- this is really interesting. This is why archetypology is fantastic to work with because you, we eventually will, with data science, revolutionize psychology. Psychology no, it will be thrown out because psychology is just a standard model for all human beings. And we are different. Men and women are different. Men are different from each other. Women are different. By finding the different archetypes, personality types, and the combo especially, you know, you do major and minor in American college. Brilliant. The, the major should really be that in your life that you just do with ease like if it's nothing but the secondary archetype where often your professional life is something where you have to get an education all that but these are your talents they are your talents that you contribute to the community where you feel proud of being who you are and just going through all these pathologies and and get these patterns is what i work with this this idea of the of the monotony gene that you're calling it which is the or the monotony archetype is very interesting because in our culture, if you're the type of person that just wants to be a fisherman or actually just wants to show up and put in your nine to five and do that, everybody's telling you, you know, like, chase your dreams, be an entrepreneur, be an artist, be all of this. And if that's not actually in you, you're just going to feel shame that actually you just want to fish and you just want to- Why do you think I've lived with sex workers my entire life? Why do you think I kiss the feet of cleaners? Not because I'm some fucking Christ figure. I just recognize that human beings are, are, it's a flat structure. And if there's ever a hierarchy, it's because it has a purpose. Nothing else. Hierarchies are therefore good. If you and I, for example, we move house on a Saturday and we decide, well, we just decide that one of us is going to decide he's the master, that the guy's going to follow the other guy's directions to be the slave because it's better than arguing about everything when you move a house. Right, right. Hierarchy. Hierarchy is a function. Hierarchy is fantastic. There's nothing wrong with hierarchy. But human beings really should be seen flat because I can tell you one thing. I'm really, really good at certain things and I have the talent for it and I worked hard. I'm terrible at other things. Mm-hmm. And I know nothing better than to go and kiss the feet of a person who's great at something that I'm terrible at. It's called outsourcing, by the way. Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's, that's, we're getting there. We're going to get towards that society. But when I talk about the archetypes, it's a great word because it's both the things you have around you that are archetypes, but it's also yourself and your personality. Mm-hmm. So it is your personality in relation to your context. That's what the right. archetype is. Right. What are some of the other, what are some other archetypes? You know, you mentioned the, you know, what are some of the other archetypes that you, you know, classify. And I know there's nuances and it it probably gets into kind of more subtle, subtle descriptions. But if you were to kind of carve out a couple big ones. um, Okay. Uh, I'll do it. For men, because we're split. In psychoanalysis, the male brain is split. We're logos and pathos struggling all the time. Women walk around being united all the time because they're mythical. The only price they pay for that, they find a bit hard to separate fact and fiction, but don't tell them. I don't like to hear that. But, yeah. but they, when, when, you, when, when you penetrate your wife, I mean, let's talk about it frankly. You go into a mythos and you feel unified. You look for the unification. She just looks sure. for the fucking adventure of being fucked by you because you're so fucking split and weird and crazy. <laughs> That's why they love rock stars. You know, they love schizophrenic uh-huh. guys. They, but, but if you think of that fundamentally, it means that men must learn how to split because they're split within themselves. That means the fundamental split among men is on the leadership level. 
And that's a split between the priest and the chief. Hmm. The chief is the body and the priest is the greatest mind. And they're united. They're both embodied, hopefully. But the acknowledgement between the priest and the chief sets civilization. This is like mm. Persian imperial history 4,000 years ago, where for 2,200 years, split the priest and the chief, keep them separate. Right? But, but what we learn, learn as men is that we within ourselves are that split. But that means also some of you guys out there have mind as your greatest strength. You're then with the priesthood. And some of you guys out there have your body as your greatest strength. Then you're with the chief. And once you make that split, you can further split. The next level of, of archetypes among men is hunter versus warrior. You have to understand the difference between killing a human being, killing an animal. The Mongols didn't. That's why they were so fucking ruthless. Because you took boys who would kill animals and sent them on a battlefield and told them to kill strangers. They couldn't tell the difference between a deer and a stranger. So they killed millions of strangers. You know, it, mm. it's, it's, you got to understand the difference between hunter and warrior. Otherwise, you go towards absolute devastation. And that's fundamental to any tribe I work with. Because you don't eat human beings, but you eat animals. And that means you've got to hunt every day if you're a hunter. But you're, as a warrior, you're going to build up and build up and build up until a war explodes. Again, the monotony gene is on the side of the warrior, not on the side of the, side of the hunter. So but there has, there has, to, be, patterns, there has right? to be like a golden, there has to be like a golden shadow or golden side to the warrior that doesn't involve just killing strangers, right? Like there's a, there's a virtuous aspect to that archetype. Yeah. Every engineer is a warrior and every trader I've ever met is a hunter. The modern equivalence is so striking with these archetypes. That's why you go into a business lounge on an airport. You see all these businessmen that they have great marriages. You know, they, they go sleep with horse and hookers because their wives put condoms in their bags when they travel. Great marriages because they're away a lot. You know, so their wives can go <laughs> hang out with the gay guys and buy shoes. And you know, it, they, they, they they're really good at marriage because they they're not there. You know, <laughs> the trick with marriage. And, and I love to hang out with those guys. I work at the Stockholm School of Economics. I, I am a trader priest in that sense. So. So, and then the hunting, I love engineering lines. I love these guys who build electric motors these days and pull everything apart and rebuild it and make it slightly better every day. They optimize processes. It's much better than utopianism is to be pro-topian. You rebuild and rebuild and build better all the time. And we're getting to those values universally. We're getting to those values. They're coming out of the internet. They're coming out of the... But that means the patriarchy are four characters since these are two axes. They are the war priest, the war chief, the hunter-priest, and the hunter-chief. Mm. And the hunter-chief and the hunter-priest are easy to find these days because there's corporate leaders and those who support the corporate leadership. And you got it set. The problem is that the war-priest and, and the war-chief are not there because politics has all become a theatrical, absurd play about intrigues and shit. And it's, it's a reality TV show, to be honest. Donald Trump was in the White House for four years because his TV show moved there. You know, mm-hmm. with Nancy Pelosi, Stephen Witch, but then he was back on television again. It's it's just it's just totally ironic, and that's a really dangerous place because we men cannot see where the fuck is the war priest. He's like really, he's the toughest guy of them all. And where is the war chief who was the king in the past and then was supposed to be a politician? And that's where men are so lost in our culture, looking for what's called phallic direction. It's really on the side of the war side. It's not really on the hunt side. But when you start looking at this archetype, you see where we're failing in contemporary society. You can be damned. This is where the major problems are as well. What is your what is your solution then? As far as like, how do you how do you actually help to coach or advise young men to actually embracing the healthy aspects of their archetypes? Like, what are what are the processes that you would you would really advise people to go through 
first I imagine identifying their archetypes, but then actually how do you cultivate that into something that's productive to yourself, your family, your society. Well, yeah, you got to get the, yeah, you got to get the narcissism out of the way. You don't pick your archetype. Is that right. old fucking woman in smacks in the face to tell you who you are? These other men. Mm. It's not you. You can't pick. You can't fight your genes. You can't fight who you are. Stop doing that. Stop pretending something else. Then you're just a theater guy. It's fake. Mm -hmm. Won't work. Uh, so it's hard work. I the word for all this work and exploded over the last few years. You're involved with I call the process of adultification. Mm. What is it like to be an adult man to take responsibility for yourself? To be a man that actually has a great social network, meaning a woman would like to date you, you know, one of these days. Uh, just just to get the adultification process going, because a lot of these guys, you know, sitting with their computer games, 19 years old, they've never earned a penny on their own in their life. I worked when I was 13 to make my own money. My, my dad just mm -hmm. got me out. You, you go off there, kid. You work on your own. And it made me a strong kid. These guys are 19 years old. They're still sucking the mamilla. They're still too close to getting support from their parents, especially the mothers for anything they do. And they have no effort at all to even be grownups. And now there's a wake up because this is totally against our old biology. There's something really wrong with this, right? And it has to be it has to be that I have to switch this age of being afraid of absolutely everything and conserving everything and, and saying no to the future, basically, into a mode where we start building shit again and we get into that sort of constructive mindset. And um, my hope is for technology because it's the only thing that ever changes. And mm -hmm. so I try to weave together the technology aspect, what technology could achieve. And, and what's and that? Creating God. Mm. Okay, here's how it goes. Number one, women give birth to children. Mm. Number two, men envy women for giving birth to children. Three, because man envies women for giving birth to children, he gives birth to technology. Four, because technology develops over time, whereas children are equally stupid with each generation. <laughs> Because we all marry the wrong person, have children with the wrong person all the time, right? Because that's the case, that means five, technology will one day override the child. We are literally building the God we never had, we're longing for. And how we built we going, one already. How are, we going, how are we going to build a God that is superior to the, to the collective intelligence of who we are aren't is because oh, as that's far as I, easy we're not that smart <laughs> that's easy that's the easy part we have other qualities that the machine doesn't have so there might be a role for us we could get back those but one god already presented himself and that was hiroshima august 6 1945 the the world is not the same place after that it's even hard to deal with it we know we can blow ourselves up at any given time we know putin can blow us up at any given time now and right. we don't want to even think about it because that's god but that is the dark God, right? Now, right. the question we as philosophers are asking technology people is that, is it possible we'll still have time to maybe build an AI that's slightly more humane and therefore that AI, before it gets going, has an interest in, you know, serving humanity? Hopefully, that's God. And, and it, we have limited time. AI will be yeah. around soon. And what AI does, once AI gets going and reinvents itself, we have no control over it. Now, one of the so I talked to uh, I, I interviewed a guest, and he was he was trying to explain the limitations in his mind on AI was that AI is actually it's continually learning, but it's learning based upon the data sets collected from human choices 
and behaviors. Like if we say, like, is this picture good? Well, there'll be a bunch of people saying like, yes, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And over millions of iterations, all of a sudden it will learn how to paint a painting or write a poem or write a write a book. I mean, all of these yeah, things that, become possible that, based it, upon that's the consciousness not, that's, of people. That's, that's just algorithms. That's not AI yet. No, all you need to do is to take a complex system with tons of data and throw, throw an obstacle in there and then ask the system to operate itself. It runs into an obstacle, has to get around the obstacle. That's AI. That's mm-hmm. one slight difference compared to the algorithms that turns it into AI. So AI will be able to do tons of shit that we can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be things that AI simply can't do. And many of the things that AI can't do probably point to the fact that we couldn't do them either. We just fantasized we could do them. Mm-hmm. There's so many weird things. Like mathematics will have to change as AI gets going. For, for because we, we've cheated when we did mathematics. I'm I'm deeply critical of the zero and the infinity. These are philosophical issues. But you, you, you'll see it when we get there. You'll definitely see it when we get there. It's going to happen so much over the next 20, 30 years in this department. Like we have to we have to redefine what we think of as science because AI will come back to us and just whap us, sweep us like that old woman and say, no, you're not doing science. This is not science. To begin, yeah. social science never existed because we haven't been able to do data anthropology until now. And that's what I'm working with. And I'm discovering that almost every fucking psychology department has lying up their asses the last 20 years and are useless compared to what you can do with data anthropology. Mm. Useless. And what is yeah? data anthropology? So, yeah. explain, explain that. So anthropology is the study of human beings as community. Tribe, family, clan, nation, empire, city, you know, all kinds of communities. And you study them as communities and you go down to what's called the individual level, which you usually call an individual because you could then go up to larger individual levels as well. You study that back and forth, and then you pick up the data from it. And it's true. All the data you ever pick up are from the past because the future is contingent. You don't know what's going to happen yet. You can only pick up the data from the past up until now. You can pick up all that data, and you can then process it. That means you can at least predict what is the recycling behavior that returns. And for example, a law of nature is completely recycling behavior. So you can figure out a law of nature how it actually works, simply from data from the past. Then what we do with that data, where we go next, you know, my friends Daniel Smechtenberg and Tristan Harris, we figured out that symbiotic intelligence is hopefully a good word for what we're trying to achieve here, like the optimal relationship between man and machine. Mm-hmm. Or that, where do we contribute? For example, human beings have a force that we call pathos. Mm-hmm. And you don't really see pathos in a machine because a machine is just electricity, the zeros and ones so far. But we don't know where it's going. But so far, it does the errors of ones incredibly well. For sure. Yeah. So the data processing already taking off. But it's actually when you put, you add the creative element. Creativity is very simple. Creativity is really about creating a membrane around something. Any life form, any city for that matter, any nation has a, has a membrane, a border. The membrane is designed in such a way that nutrition comes in and shit goes out. And the only way mm-hmm. for that to happen is for the membrane to also contain a memory. Once you have mm-hmm. a memory bank installed inside a membrane, you've got everything you look for here and you can get going. And all you need to do then is to let that membrane work the data coming in, decide what's important for its, for its, for its mission, what is not important, which it throws out, which is shit, and which it has used and has used for any longer also goes out. Therefore, the system can learn very quickly what is of interest to the system itself to survive or expand. Mm-hmm. And that's what intelligence is. It's not more mysterious than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have often contemplated that 
there actually could be a an AI that is actually a simulacrum of divine intelligence. Like, like I don't see why that I don't see why that's impossible. That we're actually able to create a simulacrum of actual cosmo like cosmological God in a way. And and would you so would you would you believe that that's you know in some ways in some ways possible that we may birth not only not only something that is like a a it like but actually actually mimics actual divine nature yeah but it, yeah but it, it mimics it will, it will be things we've never ever thought could happen culture is not nature culture has the possibility to be something entirely different from nature biology is not physics mm. uh, chemistry is not biology you, you know in philosophy these are called emergence vectors suddenly there was physics okay how physics operates is according to the emergence vector of physics has no application whatsoever for biology or consciousness or anything else you have to study consciousness on its own term, like Hegel does. He says that I'm thinking, thinking, thinking itself as thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you can really think what thinking is uh, as its own thing. And these are called emergence vectors. And you need to actually, people constantly make the mistake of taking metaphors from one emergence vector to the next and throw them in and, and see, because because Jupiter and Venus have this relationship, my wife and I have to have the same relationship. No, no, really, darling. These are totally, totally different emergence vectors. Like, just like different historical periods or different paradigms must also be studied at their own merit. Otherwise, it makes no sense. So mm-hmm. the, once, you, once you realize that you need to do that, you can then go down to the smaller bits and discover some fundamental principle, for example, which membranics is. Membranics is what you study today to do cybersecurity, for example. You've got to mm-hmm. study ultimately in what way will this thing this thing inside a membrane that we pulse put electricity in, what way would that operate? I give an example of something where I think the race is already over. Human beings will never conquer outer space. AI will, without us. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we're useless in outer space. Mm. Absolutely useless. Mm. But AI with some bacteria probably would definitely conquer outer space. Because mm. technological intelligence can live in any environment. Biological intelligence is incredibly you know, it's fragile. easily breaks. Yeah, f- yeah, exactly. Fragile. And that's why I think TI or technological intelligence will take care of the universe. And I think that race done already. We realize that since AI is not that far away in the sense that AI does its own operations and sort of develop, self-develops and goes into an incredibly fast, speedy evolution compared to us, therefore technology will take off in a way we've never seen before. Maybe we should make the deal and say, you can have outer space, but can we please skip this planet here? Because <laughs> Richard Branson has been to outer space already, so it's uncool already, so nobody wants to. <laughs> one, of, one of the aspects that I think there's a limiting factor in, in intelligence is that we're gathering intelligence not just from our mind, not from our brain, but from our entire body. I mean, there's a somatic intelligence that we're able to receive. Not only, it's not the words of a conversation, but it's the energy of the people who are sharing the words of the conversation. I mean, this is, for for better or worse, like we're able to sense things that we can't actually even name or describe. And and I think there are some, some ways in which people can say it, you know, heart brain coherence there's different things that you could actually measure but the whole our whole organism is designed to be a sensory organ for the collection of, of and transmission of intelligence so it seems that until we call we this sensocracy we call this sensocracy in our work yeah 
So sensors and senses in connection with each other, collaborating. So until we could create, until we could create some kind of android that mimicked a human body, or actually link a machine to actually measure what the body measured, seems like the 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 technological intelligence would be severely limited compared to what we're actually able to gather through the entirety of our physical expression, right? Yeah, both. That means as long as you operate zeros and ones, AI will outdo us. And a lot of the body is zeros and ones, just on a minuscule than the maximal sizes. It's a scale question. Uh, We do things machines don't do. For example, we are continuous. Uh, The thing with blood (laughs) and having human bodies, being an animal, is that most processes are continuous in you. And, And as far as we know, the machines are only zeros and ones so far. Uh, we have figured this out. That's a difference. And so far, there's no point in building machines to try to be continuous because they don't make much sense. But certainly, we'll get there eventually uh, and see how that goes. AI will certainly help and AI self-developing will certainly go towards the direction to cover that as well because the world is both continuous and discrete. But mm. we'll figure that out eventually. But I think what's important is to go back to this question of the infinite now and that ecstatic experience and how it connects to the whole thing is that the... the what we're afraid of here is we're afraid of our own ecstasy. We're afraid of our own pleasures. We're afraid of ourselves. And therefore, one of the things I love to do in my work, precisely to go with you and make people love themselves so they can stand up today, I say, let's play. Let's play together. Let's do the tango. Uh, mm-hmm. So human beings have a self-confidence to, to, to work with AI, which is my goal in my work. Of course it is that. It is to take somebody on a, a deep psychedelic experience and suddenly they see their own brain in action. Mm. and no amusement park anywhere in the universe, even if it was three galaxies large, would be anything similar. Yeah, And the healing that comes out of a person coming out of that experience saying, I love my brain. <laughs> my mm. brain loves itself. It's like probably you do, because you're like really fit, obviously you do your exercise. It's like you finally get the fat guy to get off the, you know, the, the, the French fries and the Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and go to work and get a body and finally feel that he would love to fuck a woman because he's self-confidence word and he's not envious of you. You know, when that, that's a wonderful to see that process, but it takes months to do it. But if you can do the same thing with a person's mind, and have them see how incredibly innovative their brain is and how mm. little their brain is actually exposing them of its operations. That's mind-blowing. Mm. That is self-love. Mm. Because your brain identifies with itself and it's you. You're both the brain and it's also, you know, like your dick or whatever. It's, it's just you, part of you. And you can do that with any, because any human brain, almost the simplest human brain, but just about any human brain is a miracle. And when people yeah. on the psychic experience can experience that they are inside their own brain looking at itself as the brain explodes and makes up 50,000 million things in a second, even when they're dark, you know, threatening or whatever, it's just amazing. And that, I think, has enormous value. One of the things that I, I take a look at, and it's mythopoetic, and I don't try to take it literally, but you see the picture of these small gray aliens, right? These small gray aliens. And you've never seen them laugh. You've, they don't see, seem to have generals. I mean, maybe I'm just, I'm not saying that they're real. I'm just saying maybe they're real. I think maybe they might be. But whether they are or whether they aren't, the stories about them I think are very important because they don't have emotion. They don't have the emotional spectrum 
that appears that humans have nor do they nor do they fuck uh, well if they do they do it in a very strange way because they don't have genitals or any kind of avatar tail that hooks up for sahelu or any other mechanism by which they can reach ecstasy through union and what it what it seems like is if we were able to create an artificial intelligence and then create some kind of vehicle that was some kind of vehicle that was able to hold it and actually maneuver through space. So imagine like we create this super intelligence and we're like, well, we can't go through space. We're too fragile. We'll create these different androids. These androids will go through space connected to the mainframe. But the thing that's missing is the thing that I think really makes a human a human, really makes life actually worth living, which is not the processing capacity. It's it's the it's the Erotic, it's the eros, it's the eroticism of life itself. It's the food, it's the fuck, it's the laughter, it's the music. You know, it's never like they came across some aliens and they were jamming the dopest fucking electronic beats you've ever heard. It was like mind blowing. They were dancing in crazy ways. Nobody ever tells that story because I think we, it's so. The gremlins. The gremlins did it. <laughs> the dark version of Star Wars, the gremlins. Yeah, yeah the, the Ewoks. Wasn't yeah. Mars Attacks another one of these movies that actually had enjoying little aliens coming? They like, yeah, they, they were did. like they the did. brats. At they were like the brats at high school, really. But you know, it's it is a rare. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I think I think you need to go to Freud to understand what it means to be human, especially as opposed to technology. Um, essentially, in Freud, your birth is the most horrible thing you'll ever go through that anybody goes through, and that's why you can't remember it. It's mm. called the great trauma. You were in an opiate tent, high on morphine for nine months, day and night. You didn't even exist. You were just pure bliss, right? Bliss. No yeah. subjectivity, nothing. And then you were born. And that's exactly why there's an old woman there taking you on, taking, pulling you out and saying, hello, little darling, welcome to the world, just to make it slightly more bearable. Mm. Uh, so the fundamental question, and I've gone, you might have gone, I've gone through near death or actually proper death experiences with Seamus in Peru to die and then come back and realize what rebirth really is. And it's, it's, a, it's a horrible process because you're now conscious of it because you're a grown up doing it. But you got to understand what it is. And to deeply understand what it is, is that the first reaction when you're born is you want to die. You want to die. You want to go back into the womb as soon as sure. you can. You don't want to exist. You don't want to be out there in the cold. You, you don't want to exist. Non-existence is the starting point. This obviously does not work. The people around you, including the midwife, will make sure you don't kill yourself. She will cut off your umbilical cord. You will scream like hell. She'll put you on something warm and then make it nice and toddly. And then she'll make sure you get to suck a tit. Now, once you suck the tit, they suck the tit, you think you, you don't think you exist any longer. You think you've done it. Here's here, machines don't go through any of this at all. The fact that we want to live because it is the denial of our desire to die, it's of course nothing you can put into a machine. The machine is just programmed to run as long as it can on as little fuel as possible until it stops running. Mm -hmm. Or you might refuel it or not. Machines are not beyond that at all so far. Whereas Whereas we as biological creatures uh, are obviously has to go through this. And, and as humans, you go through denial and that denial is so insistent, insistent, just like you cannot remember your birth, thank God. You can also not remember that you want to die, except if you go suicidal, which is exactly when you fall down to that path where you're afraid of living and you don't want to exist as an entity any longer. But that's where we started. We were suicidal first and then we were welcomed and therefore we want to live. This mm -hmm. is deep Freud. 
it makes perfect sense. Everything else follows from that. What childhood is, what adulthood is, what teen to your teenage years, what the teenage rebellion is, all those things are included in the Oedipus complex, the electric complex, and Freud was magnificent at this. But but what's what what we must understand is that you couldn't put you can't put any of this sort of complexity into machine. So the machine will be robotic compared to us. It will just be incredibly efficiently robotic for the foreseeable future until isn't that, maybe isn't that by why technology. Are scared comes. of it though, isn't I mean, isn't that why people yeah. are scared of? Because it's like, yeah, it's like us, but it's not. It's missing some. Why key, did I say Hiroshima? Elements. Why did I say Hiroshima? Yes, we <laughs> right, should be right, scared, right. <laughs> and it might be Warsaw in three weeks. You know, if yeah. Putin blows up his bomb, it's it's just. It's very likely Hiroshima returns. And that's what we're saying. We have limited time. If you're scared of AI, okay, we then have, since we were warned through the atomic bomb, we were warned that we can kill ourselves at any given time from now on. And everything we create is a pharmacon, meaning it can go either way. Then AI is the same thing. Now is exactly the time in history. This is why Tristan and Daniel and I will come back to this all the time. Now exactly the time in history. We must prepare for what an AI could be and put it in a certain direction. Because one, the day, there's a single line that says, there's a date when AI takes off and recreates itself and human input in its design has become meaningless. Because mm. the AI will then operate according to its own self-interest. And we're preparing for the, for the day that happens because that's a God. And when that God arrives and takes over the world in no time at all, because God doesn't know borders, we do. So God will just be, we wrote a book about it called The Global Empire. Once technology establishes itself, it will be a global empire, no time at all. And once it's there, having established itself, then it's too late to change it. And hopefully by then we have a really good trade-off between human beings and whatever the soul is. And I think well, that's it's, what we need it's to not, it's not, I mean, I think to say it's a God, it's a God if it's actually connected to all things. I would define a God as the one that knows itself beyond separation, right? Like that's my understanding of God. God has to by my by my definition know itself beyond separation be connected to all things the thing about this that's, gra- AI, that's gravity that's that's gravity <laughs> right right it's it's yeah. it's, gravi- it's connected it's gra- gravity is a force yeah okay you can call it a god if you want. but the point is that i would say the opposite i'm very much with hegel god is the understanding of your own internal separation as your own subjectivity meaning that god must always be split if you go to the world of theology the, God, the, the phallus is always split between the sun god and the rain god. And of course, the sun god represents the priest. The rain god represents the chief. Mind and body separation always there. How could God be different than that? And that says well, the whole it's, idea it's that everything is it's united. Both, it's, it's paradoxical yeah, that's your because dream. it's that's both, your, that's, your, that, that's just your dream about being united with your mother again inside the womb. But I am. That's the thing. Like, yes, I'm separate and also sure. connected. And that's like, sure. that's the reality. It's both. It's, I'm it's, honest. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just saying the God, God is, God can be much more than that. The different types of God. There's, there's the God of negation. There's where, where God does not exist. That's also sort of God. Uh, the universe as a whole, whatever it is, is a God. Uh, the difference within a world. Like we are, like Atman is Brahman. Atman is Brahman. We are participating. We are participating as a unique self in the in the entire, like a unique manifestation and aspect of the divine as part and participatory in the whole divine. But we are separate and together. And that to me is yeah. that to me is real God and demon to me is one that knows itself only as self. That's ego as well. It knows itself only as self. 
and excludes the true self. Like that, that's the difference. Like the ego knows itself. I am not anything else. I am just this. But it's also a, a being in its totality knows itself. I am my ego. Yes, this personality. I'm Alexander. I'm Aubrey. But I'm also part of that infinite force of life, the, inf- the infinite consciousness that connects yeah. all things. And so it knows I, I itself call, as I both. Don't call that, I don't call that demon. I call that autism. <laughs> so I'm a little nicer <laughs> to the demons. I, I, th- I think the way I look at this is Spinoza. Spinoza. You're Spinoza. You're a Spinozist. Yeah. He's beautiful. He's, I mean, he's one of the greatest philosophers. He's a, but I would say what I would suggest is that it's to say that, yes, the universe as a whole is God. In the synthesis book, we lay out metaphysics and its history. And it's four different ways of approaching. The universe as a whole, everything is connected, everything else is pantheos. The split within the universe itself, in its many different expressions, is entheos. The God that's not there, the negation, for example, when somebody dies, but they're present in the sense that they're dead, they're not here, but the memory of them is so strong that it still influences everything you do every day. That's atheos. We should see Uh atheos as a God too. And the fourth one, which we've never before experienced, which is the addition to the history of metaphysics that we're making in our work, is synthios, therefore the name synthism. The fact that we could create the God who does not exist yet, because we as human beings are capable of creating technologies. And actually the entire civilization is nothing but the development of technologies. We're exactly the same way we were 5,000 years ago, but technology is the cause of everything that we call civilization. Mm. And because of civilization, we can have larger systems like nations and empires without killing each other constantly. So that's civilization. That means Synthios is really pointing towards the possibility that the metaphysics could arrive at something that never existed before. Mm -hmm. It's called the event in philosophy, and that event is the arrival of Synthios. Now, let's make sure that when Synthios comes along, it's not Hiroshima or something similar, but something better. We have the time to do that. That's the point with synthesis, is to look at the three different ways you do metaphysics, where Spinoza's universe is yours, pantheos, pantheism, and in, in, in one whole with an infinite amount of attributes, as Spinoza says, it, which you can have mm-hmm. many expressions, right? I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that, but I just say metaphysics is more than Spinoza. Metaphysics mm-hmm. is Hegel's and Nietzsche's worlds, too, if you speak Western philosophy. And I'm then proposing with my colleagues is that we also have to think about technology arriving from the future is a thought we can think today. And therefore that has to be a fourth category. And then you have a complete, that's the complete picture of metaphysics, nothing outside of that. All difference you want, for example, man, woman, gender, chief, whatever, priest, whatever you have, archetypes, that's within the ethos. You find that everything you sort of study in the world is within these realms. Mm-hmm. So what, so there's a, there's a small segment of people, yourself as one of these individuals, who is actually somehow involved in the creation of this synthios, this creation of this new event, this thing that's happening. What about everybody else? Most of us have nothing to do with what's going to be birthed. How do we prepare for something that we have no hand in particularly creating? Or do we? Um, like, what do we do? What are what what what's what is that? What okay, does all the, of us the, do? As the, this whole thing's the, happening. So, there's there's always this. This is tantric in the sense that you're very abstract dealing with it. Uh, there's always this sutra: get a family, love your children, you know, send them to school, travel the world, do, do the things you do, live a rich mm-hmm. life. I'm I'm totally for. I'm with the Stoics. Is that living a good life, being nice mm. to yourself is fundamental <laughs> what you do. And going back to this thing of the ego being separate, I would say. I would say 
if I would use demonology here, I don't speak about good and evil work. What I do is I converted to Zoroastrianism in the 1990s, right. because, and it's going to be the third wave coming out of Asia after Buddhism, which will take over the West, and then following that Taoism, and eventually we go towards Zoroastrianism. These sort of trade route religions will conquer the world entirely because they're so perfect for the internet age. But I became a Zoroastrian, and that was because the way they look at anything, the only value they ever have is that you, you have an Asha, which how the world operates, and you live in accordance with Asha, and you co-create with Asha the next world. Of course, this is Tao in Chinese, and it's called Taoism. It's the same religion. But Asha is the original word, Arta in India, Asha in, in Persian. And that means you can you get up in the morning and do a Persian tantric meditation. It's not about emptying yourself like you do Buddhism. It's rather more like observing your position and being in the world, and then realize so many destructive thoughts that pop up. I'm envious with Aubrey Marcus for being so fucking handsome and having such a beautiful wife and getting married to Burning Man high on drugs. So I hate the fucking guy. And not a very constructive thought, no. So you tweak that as a Zoroastrian. You take that, it's called druj, and you tweak it into Nasha. It's not that I want to be Aubrey Marcus any longer. I'm like, I'm so happy that Aubrey Marcus is so fucking great at being Aubrey Marcus. He's such a fucking handsome dude. He's such a great role model <laughs> for my sons. And his wife is beautiful. And the fact that they go out there uncompromisingly and tell me that an ecstatic event at the Burning Man is fantastic. Heroic. And that's we become a Sorastian. An Ashavan. Uh, they, they, Nietzsche, this is called Amur Fati is to uh-huh. radically accept everything that's happened here until now and love it. Yeah. And then go from there because then you're free. And in Zoroastrianism, that means that if you, if, you, if you can't stay with Asha, if you don't want to stay with Asha, if you don't want to be nice to yourself, if you don't want to be nice to the people around you, if you don't want to be nice to your community, if you're not well-meaning, if you don't make an effort to be a good force, a force for good in your community, then what's hiding beneath that is that you enjoy your misery and mm. you enjoy your envy. And that's the druge. And I don't do good and evil, but I certainly do constructive mentality, which is spentamanyu, and destructive mentality, which is called angramanyu. This is where you get the word anger from, angramanyu. Mm. Angramanyu is spentamanyu. And that's what you do if you're a Zoroastrian. You just meditate on those two functions. So you basically clean your head every morning from those destructive thoughts. And then you become constructive. Do you, what do you think of the, uh, there's a book that's, you know, pretty popular called Existential Kink. And it, and the thesis is basically that people get turned on by some of their negative attributes, some of their ways in which they envy and the ways in which they find self-pity and self-rejection. And somehow it's like a fetish. It's a fetish, like a masochistic fetish or a sadistic fetish or one of these other fetishes that we actually if we're it's almost making the point that if we're depressed it it's kind of our kink to be depressed in a certain way does this fit in at all to this zoroastrian thinking yeah and since i work as a tantric sex teacher of course this is excellent because sexuality you can let all of that out because sexuality itself must be a container Uh and it's a play so for example you're a banker you dominate people. You, you, you're the boss. You run the show over 600 people like five days a week. Of course, if you couldn't have Friday night, you go to dominatrix who walks with high heels on your back and tell you you're a piece <laughs> of shit and you feel much better. It's just like a sauna, you know? You can go back and run the show on Monday. That's what sex work is, by the way. So there's nothing else. So the, the, the sexuality has the potential for you to play out these things and all these like, negative, nasty things. You can twist them and turn them around. And because sexuality is the opposite of what we do in social 
Yeah. So most of the time, what you do in social, you then reflect by doing the opposite sexuality. I'll give you a perfect example of that. Women are obsessed with pictures. It, they're in the imaginary realm constantly. They always say, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You give a woman road directions. Down, you go to the greenhouse at the end of the street, and then you see a yellow house, and you go have a little park, which is pink, and then you go across the pink park, and there's a red house, and that's the address. For the guy, it's just the numbers, how many meters he's going to walk, and then he turns next. Because mm-hmm. men are in the symbolic realm all the time. Mm-hmm. So men are into words and maths and stuff. The, the, this is just how the male brain works compared to the female brain. Both work, but they're different. Here's the funny thing. You go to sexuality, look at pornography. Who's, who gets turned on by pictures and films because of pornography? Men. Who gets turned on by storytelling and gets aroused by it? Women. So women, when they get sexually aroused, are, per, are like going into the other. It's like they're going into in what way would a man... We could a man be seduced by me. And here's the seduction why it's so funny to work with in the tantric realm because then you can play the opposite. If you're powerful in the outside world, welcome to be submissive. If you're the quiet mm. little guy who sits in the corner so where you're submissive, you're perfect around the show and be dominant in the sexual realm. Yeah! You know? mm. So this is the great thing with aditonology. This is the great thing with doing religion properly in a sacred space. Totally lacking Christianity, which is exactly what's full of pedophilia and all this shit. It, Get away from Christianity and Islam. Go into the Eastern religions. Go into genuine spirituality. Live with the shamans in Peru. Pursue all these, these indigenous traditions. But the point is that you're going to learn eventually that if you then take all the different forces of your own nature and put them inside a container, an aditon, aditon, and there you're practicing, you can practice everything. And that's what a tantric realm is. And I say the three tantras we're going to develop in the West are called sex and drugs and psychoanalysis. <laughs> sex and drugs, quite obviously, because anything we call a sin and is banned is probably something to do with sex or drugs. Mm-hmm. Why psychoanalysis? Because psychotherapy is sutra. Psychotherapy is about fixing you, getting you back up again, back to work, fixing your marriage. Psychoanalysis, you've you got to be you got to be finished with the psychotherapy before you do psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, you're a perfectly healthy person, but you cannot help yourself. You're so fucking devoted to go towards incessant truth that you're willing to pay anything to find the truth. Mm. That is tantra. So psychoanalysis is like how you do tantra theory, and therefore you go back and practice it. That's where the sex and drugs come in. We're going to develop a Western tantra. We're already doing I see this clearly. It comes out of burner culture. It comes out of people's spirituality. And it's going to go towards sex and drugs and psychoanalysis. Lehman Pascal has talked a lot about this. I've talked about it for years. I think sex, drugs, and psychoanalysis is the really interesting bit where we're going towards the tantric. And this is where your work, for example, with psychedelics, and you're very public about it, has been so incredibly rewarding. I mean, yeah. you're a hero. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> thank, I, you. thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I appreciate, you, know, I appreciate you, you. You do it selfishly. I do everything selfishly too. Because we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're okay guys. You know? but like I say to people, if I hang out with you, it's because I love you because I'm selfish. <laughs> I'm here because I am here because I trust you and I love you. So the, the, these three tantras are, tantra are many things in India, Tibet, Persia, China, the different tantric traditions. But when we now finally take tantra to the West, you got to get Christianity and Islam out of the picture. Because they're to- they just called this sin. It's like it's sin, uh, but it isn't. It isn't. Yeah. It just need to be contained. Yeah. Uh, one thing you mentioned is you mentioned you know men and women, and I just want to ask you know if people are bristling at that, just understand that 
what what you're talking about is the masculine and feminine property, which most commonly manifests in a actual male gender or female gender, but actually we can actually cross over those genders, experience both of those. Some men may see more in pictures in their feminine aspects. Some women may see more in symbols in, in their masculine aspects. In sexuality, we do that, yes, exactly. So, and, and all so of that. So, this, so just this, saying that, yeah. just saying that caveat as a bracket, as a bracket. But what I really want to talk to you about is, okay, so sex, drugs, psychoanalysis, the three tantras that are going to come out. Now, with drugs or medicine, psychedelic medicines, you have shamans, you have guides. You know, I've worked with Maestro Orlando Chuandama of the Quechua tradition, for example, Don Howard, the great Wachamero. Like, Don have, Howard, have, Don Howard is a saint. We love Don Howard. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. So yeah. you, you, you have a guide in that, in that space, right? You call them a shaman, call them a maestro, maestra, curandero, curandero, whatever. You have a guide. In psychoanalysis, you have a therapist, ideally. You have no, somebody who can an help analyst, you. An analyst. And you're, an you're analyst. not a patient, you're an analysant. An analysant okay. is the person of the topic, an analyst is the guy who guides you. True. Okay. Same yep. thing. So, but you have, a, you have a guide. Now, yes. sex. Sex. Now, this is a tantra in which we've actually prohibited, we've prohibited the category of somebody who could be a guide that you could go out and find and hire to actually help you in this process. We expect, because we've contained sexuality entirely to the dyad of a monogamous relationship, typically. Now, of course, I was polyamorous for a while. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, like, it feels like, it feels like a, a new class, even though this is completely heretical, to most of public culture and, and a lot of people are like no fucking way but it seems like a class of the sacred sex priestess sex priest courtesan you know this kind of category of somebody who can actually lead you through sexual tantra it seems pretty important if we're going to actually unlock the healing and actually uh mind expanding potential consciousness expanding potential of that particular tantra to expect that our partners are going to be able to do it all for us hopefully if we're lucky but it's going to be tough yeah do you know who invented do you know who invented the nuclear family as a concept i don't know constantine i don't know <laughs> uh, no a Prus a prussian bureaucrat in the 1815 1815 or something because he just realized that people were more frustrated they'd be more productive and because he was <laughs> an artist, a demon, right? So that's where it comes from. It's totally alien to any other culture except America and Europe. It's the weirdest thing ever. You live in India, large families, 40 people every family. Yeah, you arrange marriages. They're not becoming self-arranged. But the Indians are not going to go away. They're not going to go into the trap of nuclear families. Because we look at the fucking divorce statistics of our culture. It's just like, can somebody please just stop doing this? You know, maybe they can have an Aubrey Marcus marriage, but that's different. <laughs> but, you know, doesn't work. Why? It's too weak. It leaves too much on two people to be something for somebody else. So, for right. example, I've had a girlfriend for 24 years. She lives with women. I live with men. We never argue. And we're still together 24 years because we never imagined we'd be the only relationship we'd ever have. Right. Never. It's weak. Yeah. Family's yeah. stronger, bigger than that. And humans need a larger. That's why I'm a strong proponent of the sexual ritual. And I can move people quite quickly from the idea of monogamy onto the sexual ritual and doing it, especially women. They love gangbangs. Uh, you know, and once you realize that actually this, yeah, this is just Christianity and, and a horrible myth. And, and now when Christianity is being exposed, exposes the fact that the biggest pedophile ring ever is just like, 
maybe we could just get sexuality back in there where it actually belongs. It's never harmonious. It's never balanced. It's deeply problematic. And that's why we're obsessed with it. So once you get there, we can start doing the real thing. And then we have the Tantra traditions, the, the Persian Tantra, the Tibetan Tantra, the Indian Tantras, and the Chinese Tantras. And they have never hidden sexuality. Sex, sex and drugs was always open. So Rastians and Jews have no problem doing sex and drugs. It's the Christians right. and the Muslims are obsessed with not doing sex and drugs and banning it. So we get sexuality out there for the enormous, fantastic, potential, beautiful force it is. But it's very close to death and it's very close to violence. And it's not easy and it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for children. Mm-hmm. It's pathic, yeah. pathical narrative. That's what it is. I mean, and, and, it's, it's, it's a, this is a radical shift. It's, it's a radical shift to get people to this. Yeah. So I work with sex workers. I was a sex worker myself. Why? I enjoyed it immensely and it made me a psychoanalyst. It didn't hurt me at all. <laughs> Best thing I ever did. Because I realized people are obsessed with sexual fantasies. I was kind of bored. So they just asked me, could, could you go into doing this with us? And he said, yeah, I could even get a heart on. How much should I get? That much? I'll do it. <laughs> you know, so I, I never found this slightest bit problematic. And many of the sex workers, they have a strong sense of unity. Many of the sex workers are like, yeah, I was raped when I was eight, went to trauma. But I dealt with it by doing something with it. And that's what artists do. If you're an artist, you realize all the excrements of your past are the nutrition of your own future. Everything you've been through in your entire life is material. Mm -hmm. Use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, it's such a, you know, sex has been so many times exiled from where it's actual sacred place in the center of, in the center of our lives. I mean, it is, it is the universe. The universe is fucking itself open every second of reality and we're trying to fuck ourselves open and the sexual models the nature of the universe and and it's we've exiled it to these different places and now we're getting the ramifications of the the shadows of sexuality through all forms of abuse and violence and and you know just misappropriation of this kind of frustration f- yeah primal urge this frustration yeah. and so mimetic, big- mimetic rivalry Aubrey Marcus looks so fucking handsome he's got a beautiful wife I hate that he gets it so therefore I envy him rivalry and the way Christianity double rivalry was basically hide and declare it was sin to enjoy and the way other religions deal with it is that yeah Maybe we could lock up all Marcus and his wife so worse that they're not too public all the time because they make people <laughs> curious. Because then people don't know that Obermarcus Marcus and his wife are that fucking handsome and gorgeous. So, so they can't be envious. <laughs> right. uh, so I, I'd say the ecstatic experiences are not for everybody. Don Howard, who we both love, we're, we're yeah. sons of his, honor him yes. deeply. Yes. Howard Lawler. And, and the, the, the ecstatic means that the ecstatic should be locked up. He went to the jungle and did it there with the people, the Shikibu, who actually were prepared to deal with it, yeah. where Westerners can't. So I would say I do, I do tonology in the sense that there has to be sacred spaces again, and these spaces must be locked up, and you must have a really tough door guy who says, you're not ready to go in here. Or mm-hmm. if you're going to go in here ever, this is required of you. And that's just the way things are because Tantra is not for everybody. And thankfully, a lot of people couldn't even care. A lot of people happy watching racing kids, watching television, eating popcorn. They are. Thank God. 
But for those who have the spirit that you and I have, we just like I gotta get to it. I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta, I gotta experience it. I gotta know the truth. You know, if you, if you're that type of person, which means you're a shamanoid person, which clearly you and I both are, we're shamanoid mm. archetype personalities. About four percent of the population are shamanoid, and the shamanoid person, they will just go for anything. They will risk their lives. They don't care. Sure, I must do that. Yeah. Risk it's your me. life to be risk your life to be alive. Right, like that's yeah. that to me, yeah. and it's it's extreme funny, sports. You know, it's, yeah. I, I I throw myself out. I know there's a percentage chance that I will die, and I feel more alive than ever. Yeah, yeah. And there's you lots of, there's lots of ways that you do that. I think one of the funny things is you know I get a I get kind of a joking reputation with my friends who find themselves in a, in a place of deep frustration in a way in which they felt like their nature has been caged, whether it's male or female, both you know, have been placed in certain cages where lots of aspects of themselves are locked up. And my desire is for people to live a fully expressed, radically alive life. I feel like that's the purpose. So I end up getting this kind of like dangerous reputation, like be careful hanging out with Aubrey. Like he's going to encourage you to come alive. And sometimes that means, and I, and of course I don't recommend anything that's, you know, breaking any boundaries or vows or law or like kind of constructs or being dishonest, but I'm always going to encourage someone to choose the path that's going to bring them most alive. Whereas so much of society is like, no, just, just accept, accept this state of perpetual frustration, you know, surrender to releasing your desire for Eros and life force. And just, this is the way it is. And maybe in the next life, you'll get a better, you better go at it. I'm like, no, fuck it. Like, go for it, whatever it is. Yeah. it's, it's it's here uh, now. It's here and now. Exactly. Like this is this is where it is, and and there's ways to do that that don't hurt anybody else. In fact, that they're mutually beneficial to all those around you because your ecstatic state then becomes contagious and an inspiration for everybody else's ecstatic state. Of course, those mm-hmm. people who feel like they can't reach their ecstatic state will become envious to a certain degree and will try to attack it and stamp it out because the reality that you could possibly live in an ecstatic state then makes the discrepancy between their state and what could be even more painful because that's like, it's that's where abandon hope all ye who enter, you know, Dante's famous words is actually some of the advice of like, well, if I believe this is possible now, this thing that I'm experiencing is insufferable. Mm. But the lesson learned from the infinite now, once you've gone through it, and you realize you master the art and you can go to the ecstatic and you can enjoy it with others and you can get out of it, you know, to come down. And you even enjoy the fact you're a master, like, you know, when you jump into the cold water and, and you realize, I can stand this. Yeah, I can yeah. come down, right? Now, when you've done that, you understand the trauma is just the opposite of that. You can be in the traumatic situation. And of course, you do shamanic work, you're trained to do it. You're given drugs that will make you kill yourself for the next eight hours. And you go into absolute mm. hell. And just because you're locked up by the shamans, you can't kill yourself. And then you realize afterwards you're totally exhausted that you can now go to a psychiatric institution and watch somebody who's really, really ill in the eyes and say, at least I've been there. Mm. I did it yeah. only to be able to say that to you. Now, yeah. that means once you've learned the infinite now and the come down, then you can go and learn to deal with trauma, which is just you can stay in the trauma. You're only temporarily there. You still have a willingness to live because you're only temporarily in the trauma and then you can walk out and up out of the trauma because mm. it's just the traumatology is the opposite of eventology when you do shamanic work. 
event to, uh, to experience the event is to experience the ultimate ecstasy. And you you probably know this and all experience you are, but there's some shamanic traditions too where you can go into such an ecstatic state and it has the nature of only being once in your life. And that's when you really honored. Because you do experience that. It's totally overwhelming. You want to die, you want to live and everything at the same time. It's just hysterical, mm-hmm. right? And you're in that state, and then the next day they come into you and they say, You did well. Yeah, God, I survived. Yeah, but you just got to put in a hot tub today and take it easy. And then you're going to contemplate on the fact that you never want to do this ever again because the memory is not so strong. You can live with that memory the rest of your life. Yeah. That's you become really shamanic. That yeah. a unique experience is where you're allowed to be unique because you can memorize it and you live with it and it's part of you the rest of your life. And the people you experience it with are your brothers and sisters like forever. Mm. It's, it's, that's, that's where you want to go when you're shamanoid. You want to go yeah. to those... You want to go to the intensity of something that is so intense that the bond you created is will last, but the experience itself was only there temporarily. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of one. I mean, this is I've experienced this many times in ayahuasca ceremonies and in boga. And um, I remember one particular five meo journey where I was guided on a heavy dose of MDMA as like a, as a lead up to a heavy you know a heavy dose of i usually do that afterwards but okay here's another tradition. yeah well this was the other tradition and and uh i remember <laughs> the feeling was unbelievable ecstasy i mean unbelievable ecstasy and the shaman the guide whispered in my ears like would you like some more and i was just like nope <laughs> nope <laughs> like please no more <laughs> like fuck no like thank you this is amazing but i am fucking yeah. done like yeah. let me back and then there is this great appreciation for your life when you've experienced because we're always chasing we're chasing this ecstatic state and then yeah. we finally the, when get the shame, there when the shaman says that to you it's a shit test it's more like the being able to say no means you are exactly at that most ecstatic state and you know it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's nothing to improve on or enhance even further. Yeah. It, will, it can yeah. only go down if you do. It's just like yeah. that's, that's- And then that, you, then you appreciate you appreciate your default human life. You know, you appreciate like, wow, yes. I fucking more I than love ever. my life more than ever. And that's I love invaluable. my cup of coffee in the morning on a Monday and going to work and writing my next book or working on yeah. stuff. I, I just love it. I love the people I live with. I love them intensely. Uh, I, yeah. It's, it, 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 the, the real reward is to enjoy your everyday sober life mm-hmm. and never be abusive towards yourself. Yeah. And again, you meditate in the morning and you, you do your struggles every day, but but... If you could get the destructive thought patterns, the destructive feedback out of your head, and just stay with a constructive mindset, especially towards yourself, then you are fine with other people. Mm-hmm. You are a real social human being doing your archetype, doing your part of the community, contributing without having an ego involved at all. Yeah. If somebody else does something fantastic, you often and said, wow, that's so fucking brilliant. You just did it. How did you do that? It's just like, you're not envious? No, I love that you do that. Because <laughs> I'm confident with my archetype. I don't have you. I think it's just that you just did that. That you can do that and that you're the person who does that? Fantastic. <laughs> your, your, energy is, your energy is infectious. It reminds me, I've spent a good amount of time with Wim Hof and he's one of the few people who've had this kind of exuberant life force energy, I think. Perhaps you did come from the same tribe somewhere deep in the, deep in the north of the wall, wherever, wherever yeah. you guys both came from. But uh, 
But I, I always, I always love it's absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I didn't realize ice baths was a hype until he came along. I was <laughs> that was just what you did north of the wall. Um, yeah, I'm totally, I, I'm totally monkeys and all that. And monasteries, I love them. I love women, but I love monasteries more than anything. I just love yeah. those places. Yeah. One of the things, that. as we're as we're kind of coming to a close here, one of the things that I've noticed is it 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 seems to me that you don't actually you're not concerned about saying the wrong thing about being criticized. You just speak what you feel is on your mind and you say what you think and you don't worry about the criticisms that may come from the things that you say. Is this something that you've always had or where does, where do you get the courage? Because we're in a time now where a lot of people feel actually stifled from expressing their own truth in whatever it is that they feel because of the pressure. Yeah, it was my dad. It was it was my dad. He told me, walk into the room, tell the truth. They're going to hate you for it. They throw rocks at you. But 20, 30 years later, they're going to come up to you and say, thank God you said that. Mm-hmm. So it was said. It's out in the open and we had to integrate it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not interested in being popular. One of the advantages of my life story is that I was a fucking pop star and I was in the music industry for 25 years and I was television shows and I was a celebrity. Not so much in America, but just about everywhere else. I was just a producer mm-hmm. in America. And standing in front of 60,000 people and cheer young, it's a nice thing until you realize it's about them. It's not about you at all. It's about them. Yep. It's about them finding their loved ones that evening, having fun, getting drunk with their friends, shit like that. Just happen to go to a concert and you're the entertainment. You're nothing else but a waiter. And when I started touring, I would always go to the kitchen of the restaurant and say, I don't want the fucking lotion, special treatment, bullshit. This is just bullshit. We just have the same food as you do. Because you have a great shared experience for people who come here. We're going to serve yeah. you. There's nothing else you do. And then you realize when you go and tour, it's all about you and the three other guys in the band. You're exactly like your audience. You're going to go after the concert and have tons of fun, take drugs and get drunk and sleep with women or whatever. <laughs> but you know, that's the point with touring. It's the band. It, yeah. That was the band. The, the connection, the abstract connection between you and 60,000 people is absurd. It's, it's not even there in you. You mean nothing. The next year, somebody else has the number one record and you're forgotten about, and that's okay. But the band, your, your best friends, that's sure. life. And when I died in the jungle, you know, it was just loving the people I loved being concerned how that they would take care of each other if I was gone. It was the only thing on my mind when I died. Only thing. Nothing ever produced. No fame, no celebrity, no money. Nothing meant shit. It meant shit. Only love and only loving those you love the most and that they could love each other if you're not there as a bridge and then you can let go. Mm. It was the only thing that mattered. And and I think that's that's key to that it's a stoic secret to life, it's, it lies there. And therefore I was never afraid. Also because I don't, I don't care what people think of me. I just get tired of people saying bullshit or, you know. And these days, everybody knows when you're trying to be diplomatic. Everybody knows when your language is speculative. Everybody knows when you're going to see your rhetorical communication expert who advised you to say this and this to get away with shit. We are so sick and tired of that language. The kids these days, they, they go after and say, don't sales pitch me. Mm. Don't advertise to me. Don't, 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 don't Advertising is the worst thing ever. It's worse than slavery for kids these days. They realize how evil and nasty it is. They hate it with the vengeance for all the right reasons. What, what, is that, what instead is needed is just frank, honest language. And then all you can do is to gamble with that and say, I don't care what the consequences are, but from the best of mind, I will now tell you what I think. And I'm pissed off. And here we go. Mm-hmm. And of course, you pay a price. 
Yep. You're no longer in the limelight, but who the hell wants to be in the public limelight anyway? You want to be within your own community. You want to be within your own subculture. You want to be among the burners if you go to Burns. You, you don't care about the public arena is a fucking joke. It's over. It's done with. Television is dead. I left television several years ago. I never want to be on television ever again. It's dead. It's so flat, so boring, so commercialized, so non-spiritual that the public space is dead. We are now literally tribes again. It might be a new dark ages for all we care, but that's where we belong. Mm. And I'm only concerned. I, 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 I tell you this. I'm not courageous. I just plan well what I'm doing. And if I speak out openly and I cause controversy and everything blows off, at least I come home to somebody who loves me and just cheers me on. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. Make sure the things. person you live with is somebody who supports you no matter what. Yeah. Then you can look courageous because what you really have is a platform, a base for your love. Right, right. And that, that, that can make you do anything. This has been an absolute pleasure, my brother. The same to you, Aubrey, and your beautiful wife and all your friends and everything. And I hope to come over to the States soon and see you. Please, and you when you do. Terrific. Uh, when you do, Terrific. we'll hang out. We'll have some Terrific. fun. We'll drink some wine. We'll get weird. Yeah, we will get <laughs> Here's the wine. It get weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, my Big brothers. Love. So much yeah. love. Definitely. So much love. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Alexander Bard. And if you have listened to my podcast with Wim Hof and you agree that there's a little bit of similarity, I'd love to hear and see if it's just me in my own head or you got the same vibe. But it was a really fun conversation and illuminated some very important things in my mind as well. So thanks for tuning in. I love you guys. And 